And we're live. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> good afternoon. Uh, wherever you may be, this is Nikki Acosta. You are on Cloud Unfiltered. I'm joined today with my co-host, Ballard. Hello, everybody. And we have an awesome guest, author, writer, uh, former corporate employee, but now doing his own thing and keynoting all over the world. It's Joe Iman. The best intro I've ever had. We were going to do a, a theme song, but we didn't want to get copyright uh, infringement. And he recommended Nine Inch Nails. And that has, uh, you know, some Shame bad words in it. Right. Yeah. And then he met, recommended a Katy Perry tune, which I did, don't even know. Shame to the know. rhythm. It's a, it's a philosophically brilliant song. It's all about being independent of the grind and not buying into the vision of utopia. And it's a catchy tune. Ooh, sounds, sounds like a theme song you could get behind. Exactly. That's pretty, for that's sure. pretty awesome. So, Joe, uh, I, I tried to do my best to, in, to uh, introduce you, but uh, do you want to add anything else to your introduction? No? Uh, no. Nah. No? Okay, cool. What so, why don't... Wait, let's talk about your, your new book that just came out. Well, it came out a while ago, but it's it was like uh, at the top of the Amazon charts for a while. Yeah, so uh, most people know me for Cloudonomics, which is still... Uh, on uh, good days, randomly top 100 in cloud computing, which you know most things in cloud computing are all sort of uh, something about the latest release of something like you know Adobe Creative Cloud or something, uh, which is lumped up in there. But that's gratifying because all the equations are still correct and uh, everything I predicted is true. People were making fun of me like eight years ago when I said that hybrid had advantages, um, and they were like, "Joe, you just don't understand the public cloud." And I said, "I think I do." Um, what's wrong with the equations and then you know everyone was like you idiot and now it's like all hybrid hybrid and flexibility and avoiding lock-in and multi-cloud and so forth I talked about hyperscale data centers being a little bit uh, overrated because there were sound reasons for dispersion and everyone said I didn't understand and then now of course the fog is hot um, I predicted sustained use pricing I predicted spot auctions um, so that's still good and still uh, very relevant but, um, you know, back in the day when uh, I used to speak at various events that are no longer around, um, I would put up these slides with equations and everyone would be like, oh, cool equations. And then after about two seconds, I'd see their eyes start to kind of glaze over and they check their phones. Um, but I was presenting the stuff on cloud-based strategy and then, you know, their eyes would light back up again. And so that really was the foundation for the new book. Digital Disciplines, which came out a little over a year ago, um, probably a year and a half ago, and then the Chinese version came out just under a year ago. Um, so I did a lot of day trips to China last year to do uh, big keynotes. Um, and basically, that's about how not just the cloud, but big data and analytics and social and mobile and Internet of Things and cognitive and robotics and all of that new technology stuff all fits together to create differentiated business strategies. So. Uh, that's still relevant. That's the one that was uh, the number one hot new release on Amazon and computers and uh, technology for a, few, a week or two. So that was and good. You, you've had a pretty wild ride. I mean, uh, just in terms of experience, I remember seeing you at the old you know, cloud conferences. You were a staple there. But take us back before that. You know, What were you like growing up, and how did you get down this path now to being sort of an author and pseudo-analyst, I'll say? Are you sure anyone really wants to... <laughs> You're that. I mean, I'm. I do. Happy to it. Oh, you do. Okay. So uh, nothing. Computer science background. Uh, Cornell, UW Madison. Executive education um, at a school called IMD in Lausanne. Um, and then uh, I was at Bell Labs for a long time. AT and T corporate strategy. Uh, I left uh, AT and T to go to HP. Then left HP to go to Telex. And then somewhere in that period, I wrote Cloudonomics. It was published. There's two Chinese translations. For some reason, I don't know why there isn't one, but there are two different translations of it. Um, and that then led me to the keynote circuit, uh, 300,000 miles last year in the air. And now I've been doing uh, less keynoting and more writing for various clients, which is actually, I'm happy to stay home. People are like, you know, where do you like to go uh, You know, on vacation? I'm like, you know. When you travel every day, the best vacation is in your backyard with a glass of wine. So that's, uh, that's yeah. it. So tell, tell us about this book, uh, uh, Digital Disciplines. Like, um, who's, who is it written for? Why should they read it? Um, and what are some of the insights that they would get from it? 
So, you know, when cladonomics, so I'll t to help explain that, I'll give you a little bit of background in cladonomics. I was writing this book called Cladonomics, and most people have seen the original Giga Ohm piece uh, where I came up with the term, and um, uh, it was called the 10 Laws of Cladonomics, and it was like these cleverly worded things like, you know, you can save money even if you pay more, and then, you know, that was like, huh? And then the explanation has to do with unit cost versus total cost and elasticity under variable demand. And so I was writing all these things about cost optimization and in some cases about performance optimization. So for example, if you're using the cloud for geodispersion for latency reduction, if you double the number of nodes that you have, uh, what does that mean for your latency? And that's true whether you're an enterprise that's doing a build out or if you're, let's say, an Akamai or a CloudFront or what have you. So um, I worked out all that stuff, and you know, it was basically almost done with the book. And then I'm like, one day I wake up because, like, you're you know deeply entrenched in the book, like digging up references and making sure that your commas are right and things like that. And I just woke up one day and I was like, oh my god, I just wrote this whole book, and it's not quite about something I don't believe, but it's missing a very large point, which is that the cloud is not just about cost reduction. Uh, and if you think about that way, then you're completely missing the boat. And the reason is, if you figure that IT expenditures on average are 4% of revenues, and let's say you're a great CIO and you do all this clever stuff with cloud migration and hybrid and cloud bursting and multi-cloud, and you manage to save 25% of your IT budget, you're only operating at a 1% level relative to revenues, which is good, right? 1% is better than 0%, um, but it's not compelling. But conversely, if you were, let's say, Netflix, and you know you create you know tens or hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap and drive your competitors out of business because you're leveraging a cloud-based strategy, then that's really important. So Cloudonomics, yeah. like chapter four or five, is about cloud-based strategies. And you know, once you start down that path, I try and be intellectually rigorous with these things. And so, like, one question begets another question. So if you say, well, is the cloud strategic? You have to say, well, what do you mean by cloud and what do you mean by strategy? And so even saying, like, what is strategic, then there's different formulations of corporate strategy and um, competitive strategy, and they're different because one is about portfolio optimization, the other is about sort of a product um, optimization and differentiation, and then what's a product versus a service, and the four Ps models, and you know the Kepner-Trigo uh, driving forces, and Michael Porter five forces model, all of that stuff, right? So anyway, I settled in on a model that um, is called the value disciplines model, which simply put is just about better processes, better products, or better customer relationships. And these guys, Michael Tracy and Fred Viersema, over 20 years ago, coined the phrases um, operational excellence and product leadership and customer intimacy that we all you know, use today, but not necessarily giving them credit. And I really like their model. Um, so and theirs was the value model? Value disciplines, right. Okay, and value disciplines. Uh, they have a famous Harvard Business Review article from the early 90s called Customer Intimacy and Other Value Disciplines. They wrote a best-selling book that's been translated into, I don't know, dozens of languages uh, called Chinese The Discipline of Market maybe. Leaders. Multiple Chinese, <laughs> you know, Cantonese, Shanghainese, Mandarin, yeah. et cetera. Um, so, but uh, the, it was very insightful. It's very clear. It's easy to remember, which is really important because, you know, maybe there's a better model, but if you need a PhD in rocket science to understand or apply it, you know, right. that limits its broad applicability. Um, and so it's a great model, but remember back then, you know, cell phones were something that you mounted in your car and were too heavy to hold, right? And, you know, the internet was barely alive. It was HTML 1.0, um, you know, pre-CSS, right? Pre-dynamic HTML. Yeah, uh, yeah, GeoCities. You know, exactly, <laughs> right. GeoCities, AOL, Lycos, you know, all that stuff, right? So they sort of anticipated uh, like, you know, the relevance of IT. So they talk about what um, GE did in terms of creating virtual inventory through a mainframe-based system. 
and that kind of thing. But um, the point is, it wasn't really leveraging modern technologies. And the other big point is that it isn't just that you can say, oh, yeah, it's the same basic strategy, and all it changes is you put the word digital in front of it, or internet, or e, <laughs> right? Because everything changes. Yeah. And just to give you an example, um, you know, obviously having a better product is one way to achieve competitive advantage. But what did that mean for you know, the past 5,000 years? It meant better materials, like you used gold you know, rather than bronze, rather than you know, stone. Um, it meant you know, maybe finer aesthetics, uh, like a clever, you know, they had all those script logos, brand has been important you know, for a long time, and so forth. But now, when you think about what makes a leading edge product, it's got to be smart, digital, and more importantly, connected. And when you say it's got to be connected to the cloud and from there on to partner ecosystems and peer-to-peer uh, -peer environments and customer co-creation and over-the-air upgrades and things like that, you're really not just saying, uh, okay, it's, uh, you know, it used to be a better product, now it's a better, smart, digital connected product because everything changes because of that. So as an example, um, I'm going to take Nike as of a year and a half ago where I thought they really you know, had a strategy that uh, exhibited all my points very well. And so consider Nike five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, you make sneakers. Okay. Right. And you know, that's very nice. And you make some, you know, athletic shirts and, you know, shorts and things like that, and you get celebrity endorsements, and that's, you know, maybe one of the keys is product innovation, like Nike Air, the original Waffle Sole, and so forth. Another part of it is marketing innovation, like celebrity endorsements, but at the end of the day, you're selling sneakers through a third party, like, let's say, you know, Sports Authority, um, they were around at the time, um, and a customer walks in, and they say to the person, hey, you know, I'm a runner and, you know, my, you know, knee's been hurting. What do you recommend? And the salesperson kind of says, well, you could try these Nikes, you could try these Adidas, you know, you could try these and so on and so forth. And it's like, okay, great. And the person buys a Puma, the manufacturer never knows. Maybe even the retailer doesn't know, you know, that because unless there's loyalty cards. But that's the end of it, right? As a as an apparel manufacturer, you're intermediated by a retailer to an anonymous customer, and the only way you have any insight into your customer demographics and needs is maybe, you know, you have a focus group, you station someone outside the door, whatever. Now, though, if you're selling sneakers, first of all, that have like, you know, uh, accelerometers in them, motion centers, they're tied through a Nike Plus iPod or uh, various uh, Xbox coaching applications and so forth, the customer of your product is no longer anonymous. Okay, secondly, you're collecting all of this historical data on workouts and paces and routes run. You're tying it into their social network. Um, you can offer personalized coaching services. You have, you have a high degree of customer value add, and there's a model called the experience economy that says that there's a hierarchy from commodities to products to services to experiences and ultimately transformations. And a transformation, like a university education, like brain surgery, or like becoming a better athlete through coaching services, is the highest value and it's the highest profit. Then you add in the stickiness because you have years of historical data. You enable these connected digital products to open up uh, an ecosystem of partners through a developer API and SDK and cloud-based services for all this historical data. And it's not just that you have a better product the way that the Nike Air was better than the original you know, Nike sneaker or athletic shoe. It's that you've completely transformed the relationship with the customer. And if you think about things like pay-as-you-drive insurance or SolarCity, um, you know, we'll buy and pay for the solar cells on your roof and a chargeback model based on remote metering over the internet, um, you know, or American Family Insurance that gives you a premium discount with uh, Nest Protect smoke detectors. All of these products now enable new business models um, and new stickiness. And of course, it isn't just 
products because you also have services like connected healthcare where you're using a Proteus pill or gate monitors or things like that to um, you know, provide continuous healthcare as a connected service rather than a connected product. You can develop a 360 degree view of the customer. For example, GE Healthcare has something called DoseWatch where what they do is um, individual pieces of radiological equipment like x-ray machines and CT scanners are all good as far as they go and they do their job and they're calibrated to give a safe dose. But if, you know, you just left the doctor's office, you go to the hospital and, you know, the doctor sent you for a diagnostic, but you're, you know, slipping in and out of consciousness and the x-ray does a CT scan and then they do an x-ray and then they do this and then they do an MRI and then, you know, you can get an unsafe dose by the aggregation of all of these safe doses. So unless you have all this equipment sort of linked to something, it's not something that you can, you know, well, we'll send in the form and it'll be processed a month later. Um, you know, it's got to be done in real time. You know, that gives you a 360 degree view of the customer. So, wow. you know, those are some examples of the basic idea of one way to compete is through better products or services hasn't changed. And by the way, you know, these guys, Tracy and Versima, they're great writers. I only wish I could write half as well as them. And their only flaw was that, you know, they were, you know, brilliant, but they were brilliant in 1993. Back then. So I, right. So I updated the book. Um, you know, once you start thinking about this stuff, you're like, you know, oh my God, you know, um, what GE has done, um, you know, with what Bill Rue will say, who I know from one of the cloud events that uh, I think Nikki and I were at a long time ago, Cloud Connect uh, Silicon Valley, which is probably four or five years ago. Um, I, uh, Bill Rue, you know, talks about GE's digital transformation and the industrial internet. But, um, you know, I've, I've spoken to him over the years multiple times. And one of his key themes is the ability to focus not just on product sales, right? Like if you're a business, usually it's, you know, what's the funnel? How are we doing this month, this quarter, this year? You know, same period last year, you know, you know, same store sales, uh, yeah. you know, those kind of metrics. But now, because you are connected and thanks to the Internet of Things in the cloud, you can focus not just on your own internal view, but on customer outcomes. So um, things like um, Power by the Hour, where GE doesn't just sell you an engine for whatever it is, $5 million, and say, good luck with that, hope it works okay, um, you know, fill out our annual customer satisfaction survey. Now they've got 20 sensors in each engine um, collecting 5,000 data points per second per sensor that are locally compressed but then uploaded for analytics and the IoT over the cloud leads to better predictive analytics, leads to predictive maintenance, leads to optimal maintenance where you can say, look, we know that this engine is going to start to you know, have a high risk of failure in another you know, 100 hours of flying rather than you know, maintaining it you know, or having to fix it when it fails you know, in some airport where you don't even have maintenance facilities you know, just fly it over to one of your main, you know, maintenance center depots, and then you can fix it with your own certified staff and, you know, your parts and minimize systemic outages as well as, you know, maximize engine time and um, the, uh, the airplane's flying time. You can use these things the same way that Netflix does personalized movie recommendations. You can do personalized airline recommendations where you can, um, have uh, airlines adopt best practices from each other or best practices that are relevant to their own operation strategies like single engine taxiing to conserve fuel while you're kind of, you know, in line. Like I fly in and out of Newark all the time and it's, you know, from when you leave the gate to when you're actually in the air is 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes um, as a rule. So if you can conserve fuel while you're doing that, you know, that's very helpful, obviously. So um, the point is everything changes when you take the cloud as the center and then you factor in all these other things, you know, like cognitive and now quantum and uh, IoT and fog and edge computing and, 
you know, you transform architectures to not have everything central, but you can do data compression or distributed query. I'm also the, uh, I guess one of the things I should have mentioned, I'm the cloud economics editor for IEEE Cloud Computing Magazine. Uh, I end up writing about two-thirds of the articles, but we're always looking for submissions. Um, so I just did one on the hybrid multi-cloud fog, which is, you know, my, my new mantra because, you know, hybrids of private and public are provably optimal. Uh, for most customers, um, there are reasons to use just private or reasons to use just public, obviously. Um, but for many enterprise customers, a hybrid strategy makes sense. A multi-cloud strategy makes sense. And by that, I don't just mean randomly using multiple clouds, but using them in some sort of integrated fashion, whether it's supporting a single workflow or enabling some degree of data integration between the various um, cloud service providers. Um, and then this mix of uh, let me call it a, a appropriate balance of hyperscale, more centralized, consolidated cloud with more distributed fog edge dispersed computing, you know, achieves the right benefits in terms of data compression, backhaul, uh, network cost reduction and traffic reduction, um, you know, uh, response time for either users or things, right? Like if you think about autonomous vehicles, um, so there's lots of different, you know, benefits, and you can look at these things from a qualitative angle, from a quantitative angle, or from a strategic differentiation angle, and between cloudonomics and digital disciplines, I think I've covered kind of all of those, although obviously technology marches forward, so um, we just did a piece on microservices uh, that Adam Ivey from uh, Disney uh, did a really nifty analysis that showed that you know, microservices is obviously great and fits with today's architectural methodologies and container strategies and things like that. But the challenge is that when you start doing enterprise scale, like for a Disney, you have so many hits per second that what sounds like a great, you know, free offer through free tiers and per hit pricing and gigabit or gigabyte second pricing, um, turns out to actually be economically disadvantageous versus like, you know, an old style, you know, dedicated server running in your closet or even just a VM running in, you know, a pre-microservices cloud. So, so there's so all kinds of cool things to look for. So so when when somebody's hitting all the services all at once, then it it's too much and the economics don't make sense. It's better to have an old school system set up rather than Exactly. So that's that'll be out like any day. So you can just uh Google Adam I V E I V Y for Disney or uh many of your listeners are probably uh IEEE Computer Society members, so they get IEEE Cloud Computing magazine for free. Um and that'll be uh, that'll be in the latest issue. Yeah, that's fascinating. Especially, I mean, I know server serverless and being billed per transaction is is a hot topic nowadays, right? With with that, and so it sounds like that's something for enterprises to really really take a hard look at when they're looking to go down that path. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I love the strategy, and I think ultimately, I mean, I have to tell you. I just, the one thing that I really detest about cloud is usability, okay? Like, you know, what made Lotus 1, 2, 3 transform reality was ease of use, right? It wasn't yeah. that you needed a PhD in economics to use Lotus, you know, anybody could do it. Um, right. And, you know, things about, come on, IP addresses, seriously, it's like, it's 2017 and we're still worried about managing, you know, IP addresses. Like, yeah. it just, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, it should be as easy as email. And actually, uh, I don't know whatever happened to this, but Microsoft had a cool thing that they were working on. Uh, it was called Excel uh, something, data something, data scope or something like that. And the whole idea was that if you wanted to manipulate small data sets, you did it in Excel on your laptop. Uh, or a smartphone, even. Um, and if you wanted to manipulate enormous data sets, you could do it via Excel on your laptop, right? So it was completely transparent. The fact that you had a trillion records sitting in the cloud didn't mean you needed to be a cloud expert. It just meant that you, you know, kind of the same way that uh, you might, you know, just 
you know, type into Outlook the fact that, you know, here's your mail server and it, you know, from there on everything is transparent. You know, you don't know, like most people have no idea. They're like, well, wait, is this thing running on my laptop or running in the cloud? And how do I know? And if I deleted something, is it like gone for good or can I get it? Right. So in the same way, like that uh, data scope, I think it is, um, lets you manipulate large data sets, you know, in the cloud transparently. And obviously people are using, you know, data visualization tools, but, you know, Excel, you know, there must be a billion people or more in the world that, you know, can use Excel with their right. eyes closed. Yeah. So that whole model of making everything easy to use, you know, I think ultimately with microservices, that's it. Like, okay, I get programming, right? You know, I learned programming before most people on this call were even born. Um, and I can do it, okay, even I can do it. Um, but it should just be transparent, right? It should be, I wanna say, you know, A equals B plus C, and the fact that, you know, B is an enormous, you know, a trillion record, columnar record, um, or column, you know, that's, you know, I don't care, it's just A equals B plus C. Like, it should be the same, you know, or colon equals, or whatever it may be. Um, it should just be easy to use, and I think that, once the economics of microservices get past sort of entry-level pricing, you know, we start seeing price wars there too, um, then they'll actually be economic. And then you start just get into, you know, performance optimization issues. But again, even there, the point is that if you have, let's say, 100 millisecond minimum runtime for a hit, then it doesn't make sense to tune up your, your application below that. That was one of, uh, you know, Adam's insights in the piece. And so it was like, you know, man, you know, we spent weeks trying to tune this application and it turns out, you know, if it's running on your own resources, um, you know, under a classic strategy, then of course it matters because if the application runs in 50 milliseconds rather than 100 milliseconds, then it's half as expensive. But if you have a 100 millisecond minimum uh, for a, a microservice transaction, then it doesn't matter if it runs in a millisecond or 100 milliseconds or a microsecond or a picosecond it's still going to cost you exactly the yeah, same. So, right, you know, and then obviously you get into, you know, the whole interrupt-driven type of or event-driven architecture. And, you know, obviously if you're latency-sensitive, you know, even if the time from the trigger to the execution is really quick, it may not be as quick as, you know, leading things through some sort of message queue into a running application. So obviously there's some performance optimization thing issues, but I think that's the right architecture, you know, for the long term, especially once, you know, cloud becomes as easy as, um, you know, like email Excel. or messaging where, you know, my when my nine-year-old can do it, then I'll know we've arrived. <laughs> so, so in terms of, of this data collection that's happening, you know, I was on a, a really interesting panel last week at the OpenStack Summit. Uh, I tweeted out the link today, but I had Thomas Cameron from Red Hat, I had uh, Rafi Kodalian from Cisco, and I had Al Sadowski from 451. And we were talking about sort of this, uh, this notion that in exchange for having these sort of more intuitive experiences, you're also giving up a lot of privacy. You know, and I don't think that we have fully grasped uh, what our futures will look like when large companies have a bunch of data. You know, people are going to know if we, you know, work out uh, because we have, you know, our connected shoe or whatever, or they're going to know what our buying habits are because, you know, they're, they're able to see inside of our refrigerators. You know, what is, what is that balance of, you know, more intuitive experiences versus privacy? Well, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is, <clears throat> Uh, companies are going to carve out, like they already have to some extent, at least allegedly, um, that as a differentiator, right? So, uh, you know, if you have a choice between, let's say, a free app that does X, but they may use your data versus one that you pay for, it's like the difference between, you know, free, but you've got to listen to ads versus pay for and the ads are cut, right? And so that's a choice. So some people will say, hey, if somebody wants to know what's inside my refrigerator, you know, let them have at it, right? And someone else might say, wait, if my insurance premium is going to go up because I've got a lot of sugary foods that, you know, are proven, 
you know, to raise cholesterol and lead to obesity and heart disease. And, you know, I don't, you know, I'd rather pay the $5 for the, you know, uh, the uh, certified secure um, refrigerator, you know, uh, grocery store reordering app than, you know, pay, save the $5 there, but pay, you know, $10,000 more a year in healthcare. Or just put it, or just put everything in aluminum foil in your fridge, right? So they can't tell. Yes, exactly. Do you think consumers are hip to this though? Like everyday uh, consumers? No, but I think that there are, um, you know, the third parties that uh, have their own economy based on um, exposés like this, right? Whether it's New York Times, Consumer Reports, um, you know, CNN, right? You know, News at 11, you know, what your refrigerator may be telling, you know, your health insurer. So, you know, there should theoretically be... Um, I'm not saying there are now, but one can hope that it's a mix of consumer choice coupled with kind of some companies that are more ethical and make it their business to be ethical, just like, you know, no GMOs, it's no peeking inside your refrigerator. And I think that there is a market for that where, you know, right now, uh, all these things are ad supported. Um, and, you know, but people do pay for a higher degree of, you know, performance, whether it's security or timeliness or what have you. So, you know, you pay extra for a safety deposit box, you know, at a bank that presumably has video surveillance than you do for, you know, a locker at the train station. And that's why. I, I think about that a lot. You know, I, I heard a story on NPR after the, the recent Google hack, and they were talking about, you know, services that are already connected to your Google accounts. And so immediately I pulled open my app and I was like, ah, I still have unroll.me installed. You know, <laughs> great. Uh, and, and look, unroll.me was a great service for me because, you know, I subscribe to a lot of things that I don't necessarily need to see individual emails for. I'm just bombarded by email. But I started to think about that. I'm like, okay, well, who else has access to my Gmail account? You know, TripIt's in there, you know, for all my trips. I mean, what else do these people have access to? I mean, presumably someone could get a pretty darn good feel uh, of my purchase habits, you know, things that I'm interested in, my, you know, political or religious affiliations. Yeah, uh, you know, I reviewed all your stuff because I had access to your Gmail account, but it's sometimes <laughs> just like there's only so much time in the day and <laughs> like whatever, you know. I I started to get the the pattern. So, would people pay for Facebook if they knew that their information wasn't being shared? If they knew that they didn't have to see ads, you think people would pay for it? Well, I think you're already seeing that you know some companies have better behavior, right? So, Facebook is kind of realizing you know with the the whole these uh, the links that lead to either viruses, other malware, or if nothing else, they're just you know a way of serving ads but don't have any content. Uh, I have a patent, I have 22 patents that have been issued actually, but one of them, uh, or two of them. That's all, around, Joe? Just 22, just 22 patents, that's all? Yeah, only so far. But, <laughs> uh, but a couple of them are basically, I'm looking at, it was a better search algorithm based on, instead of just um, the PageRank algorithm and those kinds of uh, relevancy-based returns based on um, a recursive analysis of links that you could actually look at traffic without doing deep packet inspection to better understand if someone was clicking away fairly rapidly. And you can either do it in the network or you can do that on the edge, which actually when you click on a Google result, you're actually not taken straight to the URL. You're, you're first taken to Google so it knows which one of the links you clicked on and then ultimately yeah, um, and I remember when that changed too because I, I remember I was like, why is it so much slower now? Or, I remember that. And but again, it's, you know, I don't think Google is doing anything unethical with it. It helps the algorithm, right? If they right. know that when these five links are presented, you know, humans are smart enough to ignore these four that are just random garbage and, you know, they always know this one, then that helps tune the algorithm. And But in addition... What would be really useful to know is if you clicked on something, you were like, oh, geez, you know, I can't believe I just did that. This is, you know, nonsense. Um, then that should be worked in, too. So it's the whole time at the destination, not just the initial choice that's relevant. 
So, any, you know, it's one of those things where, it, you know, technology can be used for good or bad, right? It's like clean electric power or nuclear war. And, you know, well, is it good or is it bad? It's both. And in the same way, you know, these kinds of things for some demographics are going to be, this is great. You know, I, you know, I'm not, you know, a billionaire, uh, you know, and like uh, every penny counts. And so I don't want to pay you know, $30 a month for a Facebook type of service. So whatever, like I'll look at ads, I don't mind, you know, and they're kind of interesting sometimes. And an ad in itself is not bad or good, right? If it's, if it's very relevant, it's good. If it's irrelevant, it's a waste of time. And obviously if it's malware, it's bad. So, you know, the kinds of things that let companies tune these things can be good. You know, obviously if, uh, you know, like, uh, I'm sold. I actually am one of the few people that still watches like the nightly news, um, which has like, it's basically a nonstop pharmaceutical commercial interspersed with bits of news that, you know, I got, you know, on Google news 24 hours earlier. Yeah. Um, but whatever. Cause you, need, Cause you need a more comfortable catheter. Let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So uh, those commercials are horrific. I see them too. And I, I'm starting to see them more and more, you know, yeah, well, that's I all, click that's around and I'm like, it's like, um, it was pharmaceutical, 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 Trivago guy, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, <laughs> Trivago guy. And now after five years of having that same guy, now they have the Australian woman. So it's pharmaceutical, 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 Trivago woman, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical, but you know, whatever, it's a choice that I make. And you know, if I don't like it, you know, I should do something else with my time. Um, so what are, what, are like. the, what are the implications of humans being bombarded with this much data? Like, do you, do you think our brains have evolved to be able to handle the amount of input that we're getting on a daily basis? Uh, I know mine hasn't. And there's some studies out of Stanford that says that multitasking is a myth. You know, yeah. people think that they're good multitaskers and then, you know, and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I can do that. I can, you know, listen to music while I'm, you know, doing work, while I've got the TV running and, you know, I, I get it all. And then you ask a simple question like, okay, well, you know, was, you know, somebody murdered, you know, oh, uh, what, you know, or what happened with this plot twist? I, I don't know. I, you know, just I missed that one thing. So, you know, I think, uh through the existing mechanisms, um, there are limitations. I think, you know, as you maybe deal with direct brain interface technology, um, there will be some improvements because you're no longer limited by the interface bandwidth, but still you have limits to attention. So unless there's some pharmacological mechanism for changing our brains, uh, you know, we're kind of limited by what we can do now. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether my eyes are open or closed. I can only, you know, like I couldn't have this conversation if I was trying to watch TV. I'm like very, uh, very much of a single tasker. Um, and the robots are going to take over sooner or later anyway. So we don't have too much longer to have to worry about being bombarded by ads. And then you won't have to be at your mom's house helping her move because robots will do it for you. Uh, well, that's a very benign view. Yes. Hopefully you're right. <laughs> If someone could just if, if someone could invent something that would move you, man, I would pay for that for sure. True, I, even moving companies is still old school, you know. Oh yeah, true. So, so Joe, one thing we were talking about just before the show, and I, we didn't get too deep in it because I wanted you to save it. But uh, one thing that's been getting a lot of attention just in tech circles uh, is this notion of net neutrality and what the future of, of net neutrality is going to look like uh, given some of the announcements made by uh, Ajit Pai. Uh, and you you said that there are pros and cons, uh, but what are, what are those pros and cons in your mind as far as net neutrality goes and what is your stance on it? So, you know, overbooking, um, like people are like irritated, you know, obviously by the recent incidents and you know, I think it's pretty clear that dragging someone off a plane and nearly killing them is probably not a good idea, either from an ethical perspective or from a uh, customer messaging perspective. Um, so people are like, well, we should stop overbooking. Okay, but, you know, there's an example of where you make a trade-off, and that trade-off is, um, you know, tickets would be more expensive and you'd have less flexibility, right? It's like, you know, concert tickets, for example. 
Um, you know, they don't overbook, you know, concert seats. Um, you know, but the issue there is that if you don't go, you better find someone to buy your tickets or else you're out the money, right? You can't just, you know, it's not a, you got to have a $20 change fee for, uh, for concert tickets or a $200 change fee. So in the same way, like, you know, so overbooking has its advantages statistically because it gives you like the 10% of people that change their minds flexibility. Um, but you're obviously playing a statistics game and, you know, whenever you have something that's out of outside of one or two standard deviations, maybe, then you end up with challenges, right? With, you know, bumping people from flights or, you know, needing to buy tickets. And obviously, mathematically, you're doing that economic optimum. So it's the same thing with net neutrality in the following sense. Um, if you're an over-the-top player, then, you know, you'd love to be able to continue making fat profits, right? Basically printing money like they leading over-the-top players do, um, and kind of let somebody else invest, you know, the tens of billions of dollars in uh, capital uh, investment in network infrastructure so that you can keep printing money. Um, so, yes, it's great from that perspective if you're over-the-top player. It's great if you're a consumer um, that wants to be able to benefit from free services and so forth. You know, if you're watching Netflix, obviously you want, you know, not just 20 megabits per second of the house, but 20 gigabits per second of the house so that, you know, the whole family can watch in, you know, HD 4K or soon 8K. So uh, that's all great. But if you're the person that is investing in that infrastructure and trying to, you know, make a return that is, you know, just somewhere you know, nominally, marginally above like, uh, you know, Christmas club accounts at the bank, then, you know, you want to be able to, you know, make a fair risk adjusted return on your investment. And I think therein lies the rub. So, you know, like I said, there's pros and cons. It depends on, you know, where you are in the ecosystem and are you making money or losing money? Um, I would say that I have, you know, very little illusion um, that, uh, you know, most, if not all of the companies in the space are all profit seeking, growth seeking enterprises. And so, you know, rather than listening to some appeal because we love the consumer so much, it's more a follow the money type of thing. And, you know, not to, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with making money. Um, you know, that's what drives innovation and, people didn't make money, we wouldn't be in this Google Hangout right now. So that's all, you know, it's all good. But, you know, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, who makes the profit? It's not anything else. What about browser histories? As far as, you know, companies being able to, like they have it before, uh, capture your browsing history data and sell it to other people? Yeah, well, you know, that again is, something that was already happening, right? It's just a matter of now the players that were already able to monetize it don't want other people to enter the market and monetize it. So, you know, obviously I as a consumer don't want anybody, I don't care if they're an over-the-top player, a network service provider, a foreign entity, or anybody looking at my browser history, or I don't want them rifling through my drawers. I don't want them in my living room. <laughs> you know, I don't want them you know, stopping my car on the road and, you know, you know, throwing an ad in the window. I, you know, I just, you know, obviously, you know, most people like some degree of privacy. Um, and so, but again, I think it comes down to for every technology that says that we can look at browsing history, you know, there's technology to sell a browser, you know, or offer a browser uh, that has incognito mode. Um, for every, you know, open internet that is potentially eavesdroppable, there's, you know, encryption and Tor. So, you know, it's just, it's a war of technologies. And I guess what it comes down to is the uh, consumer slash enterprise customer just needs to be wary. And there's momentary advantage, you know, like with Unroll Me, where it was like nobody knew. And then the news came out and then there goes that business. Um, you know, and so there's also ephemeral 
business models that, um, you know, that they dry up and just this constantly evolving ecosystem. Do you think that enterprises are, if you had to give enterprises a grade on how they're doing in terms of, you know, adoption of or or building out of things like, you know, artificial intelligence or, you know, advanced algorithms to make decisions around the business, what grade would you give, you know, your typical, let's say, Fortune 1000 customer? How How is the industry doing as a whole? Look, I talk to lots of CIOs and I go to lots of events with CIOs and ITVPs and directors of IT and so forth. And, you know, I would say that they're uniformly have, you know, great heads on their shoulders, but we're also dealing with very complicated technological challenges, a lot of evolution, and also, you know, there's a well-known problem just in staff, right? So if you're a super sharp, you know, take whatever you consider to be the best school, you know, MIT, uh, Tsinghua, Stanford, Caltech, whatever. If you just graduated, you know, summa cum laude from one of those schools, um, you're either going to go, you know, private equity, uh, McKinsey, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, right? And so the challenge is, you know, if you were the typical you know, Fortune 137 company, whoever that is, I'm sure somebody can look it up, but it's, you know, uh, Bob's, you know, North American Steel, Continental Can, uh, you know, pick your favorite airline, et cetera. Um, you know, the first thing is, how do you envision the possible? And uh, there's some great uh, work from Dick Foster from when he was at Kinsey, um, that some people are familiar with but may not know that it was um, him and a colleague that did it um, around the notion that markets are much better at dealing with discontinuities than enterprises, right? So they know the Christensen stuff. They might know some of the um, incumbents curse stuff around risk aversion, cannibalizing existing product lines, et cetera. But markets typically are better at you know generating innovation, right? So if you're yellow cab, you're thinking, how do I get my tires at a better rate? You're not thinking, let me create something called Uber, um, which is partly a lack of vision, uh, partly a lack of traditional focus and kind of the IT skill levels of, let's say, typical senior executives um, of these companies. And so it's up to, it's classic Thomas Kuhn paradigm shift stuff around, it's either outsiders or young people that create new paradigms. And today, obviously, with the cloud, um, you know, the ability to innovate, you know, between you know app stores and AWS and/or its competitors, um, you know, any literally not any, but you know, even a twelve-year-old can uh, innovate. So there's this super cool guy, Tanmay Bakshi, uh, who I've seen at IBM Interconnect now twice. He's twelve years old. He's an amazing keynote speaker, does live demos, and he's like, oh, yeah, here's what I'm doing, you know, uh, with, you know, the IBM Watson API, and I created this new service just this morning that does this and that, and you're just like, oh, my God. So the ability, you know, you're just unleashing innovation as never before, but, you know, everybody is not Tanmay Bakshi, and so the whole thing is that, you know, that's the issue, I think, is first, how do you envision what's possible. Secondly, how do you deal with, uh, you know, a classic Clayton Christensen type of disruptive innovation, you know, uh, incumbents dilemma. He calls it the innovator's dilemma, but it's really the incumbent that has the dilemma. Um, and so, you know, how do you deal with that? And then even if you can deal with that and you say, you know what, we'll cannibalize existing product lines, we'll create a skunk works or you know, we'll work with partners, we'll do a JV, arm's length, whatever it may be, you know, how do you staff it? Um, and I think, you know, those are all the challenges. And then when you get into some simple things, like in Cloudonomics, I talk about, well, just look at the unit cost of your own, uh, you know, enterprise data center versus running the similar services with that architecture in the public cloud. So that is easy to say, but hard to do because it's, and here's the analogy. If you want to know how much a hamburger costs at McDonald's, 
you, you know, drive there or look it up on the web and you, you know, look at the menu and it's like hamburger $1. So it's pretty easy. You know that the unit cost of a hamburger at McDonald's is a dollar. How much does a hamburger cost in your own house? Well, the cost of the beef you can figure out, you know, per quarter pound, but how do you allocate the cost of the kitchen? And if you use this frying pan to make seven different dishes, how frequently do you make hamburgers? And therefore, how do you allocate, you know, the cost for the hamburger versus that of making pancakes? And by the way, you know, you use your home office to pay the electric bill, which goes to the lights so you can see what you're doing. So, right? So it's the exact analogy if you're an enterprise data center. How do you figure out how much a transaction costs in your own data center? Well, what's the overhead cost? SGNA for the enterprise, how much gets allocated? What about the salary and bonus of the CIO? Well, what about the team that's working on operations, but this is just one of the applications that they're worried about? And by the way, seven of them are on a new DevOps initiative. And you know what I mean? So the, you know, envisioning something completely innovative is really hard, okay? And, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, markets with disruptors and global innovation are probably a better way to do that. Once you envision it, actually executing in every dimension is hard. And then, by the way, if you thought you were kind of understanding, you know, hardware as a service, then VMs come along. And then you thought you were understanding that, and then containers come along. And part of your team goes here, but then microservices come along. But then AWS introduces this new service, but then, you know, Microsoft has cloud functions and they do that, but is it better or worse and what's the cost than what the comparable Google function is? And then with IBM, I can run uh, OpenWhisk and, you know, maybe I can do that in private or public. But, so, you know what I mean? So doing anything intelligently and optimally takes information, which is constantly changing and which takes money to gather and you kick off an initiative, and by the time that initiative reports to you and you revise that and you report to the board, there's already been five new <laughs> you know, generations of technology. So, uh, so it's not easy. So you've got you know, very smart, very well-meaning professional people that are just, you know, it's a challenge being in this industry today. How do you keep up, Joe? How do you stay up to date on things? What sources I, of Try and listen to Cisco uh, podcasts. <laughs> Shameless plug. It's, By the way, this is available on iTunes and I. Uh, <laughs> please subscribe. Great answer. Um, yeah, so uh, it's really, I'm more of, you know, I either get my information through uh, reading, um, you know, and Google News is the source of everything. Um, or through conferences. So one of the advantages of being a frequent keynoter is I'm a frequent attendee, um, and you know I like listening to what smart people are doing, and then you know I meet them when something is intriguing. So for example, I was talking about this Adam Ivy article. You know I like accosted him. He's probably like ready to call the cops on me in uh, Shanghai at Cloud Connect China. I was like, oh my god, this is great. You know, like, would you do a piece, you know? And he was like, uh, you know, get away from me before I call security. I was like, no, seriously, I'm not a crackpot, you know? So um, so that's good, you know, too, is uh, things like IEEE Cloud Computing. There's, you know, some uh, lesser-known academics and some pretty well-known people like David Linthicum that write for it um, frequently. And so, uh, so, but, you know, it's hard. There's an infinite amount of information, and there's only so much time in the day. So... You know, it just seems like it's getting harder and harder, which goes back to my theme about why usability is so important, right? If, you know, nobody had to go to a six-week, $10,000 training class to figure out how to use their first iPod, right? And that's the key, right, is you just make things easy and usable, and then anybody can do it, um, and that's ultimately a, a mechanism for... Um, adoption and crossing the chasm. I, I was at a I was at the Open Sex Summit last week, and it just happened to be attached to a mall. And there just happened to be a Barnes and Nobles there, and I was kind of meandering through Barnes and Noble. But one of the end caps was completely devoted to X phone for seniors, like how to use an iPhone for seniors. You know how to use a Samsung Edge for seniors. You know how to use it in uh, XYZ device. You know how to use a computer. And it just, it was, it was amazing to me 
the, you know, the, the cultural divide, how much has happened. And you can, you can see it. I mean, you can see it between, you know, my generation and my mom's generation and my grandfather's generation. Like the so older you are. Are ebooks available for download on how to use an iPhone? No, they were, they were physical books and magazines that I saw. Now, when you use the term physical books, what are you referring to exactly? <laughs> Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> Those things with pages, you know. Oh, meanwhile, I was there to like keep one of these uh, grocery list uh, things and to-do lists. I, I needed like actual dedicated, you know, notepads. This uh, company makes these great, like, hey, here's the things that you should do. You know, keep track of it, and they put it oh, in very nice clever. Ma mouse pad format because that's called digital physical fusion. I need it. Paper that I, need uses it. A I wish there was a calendar that I that could have on my desk and I could just write on it and it would just feed to the cloud and sync with all my devices. Like in my own handwriting. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, your Nest cams have already been hacked into. So the one that is where your calendar is in view um, actually is already in the cloud. Oh, great. So, so don't you actually have an appointment coming up? I can't really <laughs> see. I have a window open on your calendar. What a scary future we're living in. My <laughs> goodness. Oh, and, and great too. You know, I, I think a lot, you have a nine-year-old, I have an almost seven-year-old, and I think a lot about just the path of, of education and how outdated it is. You know, we used to have to memorize things. Uh, and, you know, I, I remember telling my programming teacher, who was also my geometry teacher, I'm like, why do we have to learn this stuff? Like, can't computers just do this already? And he's like, it's not a matter of the content, it's a matter of using your brain. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. So you're telling me I should do this because it's good brain exercise. Uh, so, you know, looking back at those times, it's, it's pretty amazing to kind of see that education, how desperately behind it's fallen. My kid well, is asking Siri for anything. How, Siri, how do you spell blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, man. Well, it's true, and uh, you know, the, talking about education, like my daughter would spend all her time in Minecraft if it were possible. Yes. And so, which is not really a big issue. You know, I used to play with wood blocks when I was a kid, so she plays with, you know, virtual blocks and wood and many other substances, right? Um, but if they could just figure out a way to deliver, like, history and multiplication tables and learning how to do division and, you know, stuff instead of these, like, enormous, like, 80-pound workbooks. I'm surprised she doesn't have, like, uh, back problems from carrying her backpack. I can barely lift it. So, if, you know, if they just put it into Minecraft, then, you know. That would be good. It would solve world right? hunger. Everyone would, be great. would have a PhD in astrophysics, you know, as long as it were just, a, you know, a world in Minecraft or Roblox. You're a tech guy and I'm a tech gal. And I'll tell you what, my kid loves his video games. He loves them. And you know, I hear all the time, oh, you should limit their time, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking about it and I'm like, man, you know, on one hand, I feel like I should. On the other hand, I interview a lot of podcast guests who were that kid. So, you know, it's always a struggle, but we do the best we can do, right? Exactly. Well, Joe, we are about out of time. I think somewhere along the last few minutes, we lost uh, Val, but that's okay. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Like that, I think. Where are you going to be uh, coming up? Are you you're working on a new book? Yes. Yes. Can you tell us anything about that? On innovation. On innovation. I where can people figured out find the you? secrets to innovation and where some prior people have good arguments, but uh, they're not quite right. So I figured out where they're wrong and you know what to do and it's funny how one thing leads to another like cloudonomics one chapter in there led to the new book digital disciplines and digital disciplines um, I was looking at innovation as a strategy and specifically cloud mediated innovation like innovation networks and idea markets and online contests and challenges like folded or the Netflix prize um, and so I did a couple chapters on innovation and uh, Kind of as I thought about it more and more, I realized that I think there's some valuable insights that I have. So I just got to find a few free minutes, much less months, to actually bring it to a close. So hopefully Well, I'm soon. looking forward to it, most definitely. I got uh, a copy of your autograph, Cloudonomics, many, many, many years ago, and I still have it. So Someday that'll be worth a lot. Like if you, it's a cold day and you need to... Uh, Start a fire and to stay warm. <laughs> exactly. When, when our electric grid gets hacked and it's freezing cold outside, and the only source of, of warmth you have is the books in your home. Exactly. 
Uh, well, actually, I just watched Day After Tomorrow last night. It was I watched part of it, and that's what they do. They're in like the New York Public Library. Yeah, I remember that. Freezes, yeah. So, um, but speaking of which, I know you've got to wrap up, but am I the only person that thinks that Kindle was partly named for book burning? Ooh, good one. I just, I thought that was like, I don't know, not to start another conspiracy, but that was my original thought for what it's worth when I, you know, heard the name of it. Um, well, I, I, I do know that there are some deep meanings behind some of the project names in OpenStack, and I won't say what they are because I've covered that in other podcasts, like with uh, John Dickinson of Rackspace, if you want to go back to the old podcast archives. But so yeah. what's, one, what's one of the uh, project names that you can't mention? Uh, Swift. Where they oh. got the name for Swift, and there's a, there's a handful of people at Rackspace that knew where the product name for Swift came from, and uh, when I when I found out what it was, I was like, oh, interesting. Uh huh. So you may have to go on a, a wild goose hunt because I'm not going to say it here, or you can stick okay. around after, and I'll tell you. All right, I'll see. All right. Well, Follow Joe. It's W. That was fun. J O on Twitter. J O E W I E M A N. Uh, J-O-E-W-E-I-N-M-A-N. E before I. Wine, kind of spelled the German way rather than the English way, and man. Awesome. All right. And with that, I will toast you a glass of wine tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. Oh, you don't have to toast me. Feel free to just uh, <laughs> express mail the bottle. I'll, I'll think about you when I burn books for warmth. How about that? <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I hope you can come back sometime soon, Joe. Thanks All for right, joining. Those of you who are here, SoundCloud, we're on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe. Please leave a comment. Leave a message. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, farewell. Goodbye. Farewell. <laughs>